And today we're resuming our series to the book of Revelation. So would you please take your Bibles now and turn to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4, if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide under the seats, you will find this on page 1030. Page 1030. And as always, I will begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll consider the text together. Let's bow together now. Our Lord, we are so grateful for this day. This is the day that you have made. And Lord, we're so grateful for an opportunity to open your word and to consider its contents. And as we explore today's passage, would you give us understanding? Would you give us spiritual wisdom? And would you help us to make practical application of his truths to our lives? Lord, use this text to, to awaken in us a, a new understanding of yourself. And might that new understanding give us confidence in our day-to-day lives. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So decades ago, a pastor named A.W. Tozer wrote this. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And for this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact of, about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. And then he says, were we able to extract from any man a complete answer to the question, what comes into your mind when you think about God, we might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that man. And friends, if that is true, and I believe it is, then it would seem that the first task of the church is to instill in people a proper view of God. And along the way, to explode every myth about God that people might entertain. Of course, the best way for us to do that is simply to expound the Word of God, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, allowing God to show us Himself through His Word what He is like. Allow Him to explode all of the myths. This is what we're going to do through today's text. Again, we're in Revelation chapter 4. We're looking at the entirety of the chapter. Revelation 4 is somewhat unique in Scripture in that, in that here we are taken into the very throne room of heaven. And we are given an opportunity to look around that throne room and to just take it all in, to see God in all of His glory, and to allow our perspective to be shaped by what we see. So we're going to walk through this passage today, verse by verse. Let's allow this passage to do its work in us. We begin in verse 1, which sets the scene. So the Apostle John writes here, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said this, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Okay, so you'll recall back in Revelation chapter 1, the Apostle John is transported spiritually into heaven. There he sees the resurrected Christ. Christ then dictates seven letters to seven local churches, and the Apostle John records the letters. 
Well, we're now moving into a new section of the book of Revelation. This is a new scene opening up before us. And here in this new scene, the Apostle John witnesses an open door in heaven. And he hears the voice of the resurrected Christ summoning him to pass through that doorway. And Christ explains that it is in this new room that he is going to disclose all of his future plans for the world. And so John obeys the voice. He passes through the doorway. And now what we have for the remainder of this chapter is the Apostle John simply looking around the room and he is taking it all in. And he records everything that he sees and hears for our benefit. So through John's eyes, we get to see this room in heaven. Well, in verse 2, John tells us the first thing that he sees is a throne. He says, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven. The throne is a seat of power and authority. But what John sees here is not just any throne. This is the throne of God himself. And you'll notice John says the throne stood in heaven. This speaks to the fact that the throne of God is firmly fixed. It's as if it has been bolted down to the floorboards of heaven. This throne is not going anywhere. And it is this place where Christ rules the whole created order. Friends, from this throne, our God sustains this trillion galaxy universe. From this throne, he decrees the rise and fall of empires. From this throne, he hears and answers our prayers. And from this throne, he keeps count of the very hairs of our head. It all happens from that throne in that room in heaven above. John got to see it with his own eyes. And friends, one day, you and I, if we are children of God, we will see his throne with our eyes too. Not just with the, the eyes of our minds, but with real, glorified, physical eyes. We will see this. Well, as we continue with the text, we find John doesn't just see the throne, but he also sees the one occupying the throne. He writes verse 2, Behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. This is God himself. He is on his throne in heaven. John says he is seated there on his throne. Our Lord is always seated on his throne. Psalm 9, verse 7, quote, The Lord sits enthroned forever. God never steps off of his throne. He never delegates his responsibilities to another. He never relinquishes control of that throne. Always and forever, our God is in heaven, sitting on his throne, reigning over this entire created universe. He is doing it personally, every moment of every day. And in verse 3, the Apostle John describes God's appearance on the throne. He says, He who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. Now, this is really interesting because the scriptures tell us that God is a spirit, which means that naturally God is invisible. But for our sakes, God chooses to visibly manifest himself. But when he does, God's appearance so 
overwhelms the senses, so far beyond anything that we can process, the best that human beings can do is start offering analogies. I saw God, and it looked kind of like this, which we're familiar with. But that's the best that human eyewitnesses can do. And so here John gets this, this glimpse of God in all of his glory, sitting upon his throne there in the very throne room of heaven. And he says, the, the best I can say is that he looked like Jasper and Carnelian. Now these are two gemstones. Jasper comes in uh, all sorts of different colors. Here, the Apostle John is probably thinking about clear jasper, like crystal or diamond. And I say that because at the end of this book, Revelation 21, verse 11, uh, John describes the New Jerusalem as, quote, like jasper, clear as crystal. So when he says God looked like jasper, he means that God was bright, shining, gleaming like a a sparkling diamond or, or crystal. And then he goes on, he says God was like carnelian. Now, carnelian is a gemstone that is translucent in nature. And it's a reddish-orange color, kind of like fire. So John is clearly seeing a figure here unlike any that we have ever encountered before. Here on the throne is a figure. He is bright, shining, glistening. He is like diamonds. He is like fire. He is like gemstone. And this being holds all the power of the universe in his hands, and he is exercising that power every moment of every day. Now we come to the second part of verse 3. John tells us what else he saw, what he sees around God's throne. He says, And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald, another gemstone. So think of it as a halo arching over the throne, and it's, it's a halo of pure green, like an emerald. John doesn't explain the significance of the color green here, but green is the color of life. And so perhaps this halo over the throne is communicating to us that the God of heaven is the true and living God, and that he is the God who is the creator and the sustainer of all life in the universe. Then John sees other things around the throne. Verse 4, it says, And around the throne there were 24 other thrones. And seated on those thrones were 24 elders. Then he describes the appearance of the elders. He says they're clothed in white garments with golden crowns upon their heads. And who are these figures? Well, again, John doesn't tell us explicitly. But looking at the surrounding context, I think we can get a pretty good idea. Do you remember back in Revelation chapter 3 as Christ was dictating his letters to the seven churches? Well, back in Revelation 3 verse 5, Christ said to the church, quote, The one who conquers will be clothed in white garments. And then in chapter 3 verse 11, Christ said to the church, quote, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have that no one may seize your crown. And then in Revelation 3, verse 21, Christ said to the church, quote, To the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne. And so back in chapter 3, as Christ is writing his letters to the churches, he makes all of these promises to the church. He says, To the conquering church, their destiny will be thrones, white garments, crowns on their heads. Now we come to chapter 4. John is looking into the throne room of heaven, and he sees 24 figures around God's throne. And what are they wearing? They're wearing white clothes, 
crowns on their heads. They're on thrones. Friends, what we have here are representatives of the church of Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 4 is a new section of this book. It's a new scene opening before us. And what John is seeing now is the conquering church. He sees the church receiving its reward. They're all in heaven now. They're on thrones. They're reigning alongside of Him. They're draped in white. They've been glorified, now purged of all sin. Friend, if you are a child of God, this is your destiny. Your destiny is to be purged of every last vestige of sin, to be holy as God is holy, to be given the victor's crown, and to reign with Christ as his bride in his very throne room. That's what awaits you if you belong to him. And now we look in verse 5, we see something issuing from God's throne. The verse says, And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. Now this is very similar phenomena to what we see when God unveils the Ten Commandments there on Mount Sinai. And there at Sinai, this spoke to God as the judge, the one who establishes moral standards and who holds his people accountable. That's surely what we're seeing here as well. God is upon his throne. He is the sovereign of this universe. And he is exercising his proper role as judge. And then we continue to read the chapter. We see something lying before the throne. It says, And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits or the sevenfold spirit of God. So around the throne, we have thunder and lightning issuing forth. But then also before the throne, we have the Holy Spirit of God. Remember, that's what we learned about this sevenfold spirit in chapter 1. The Holy Spirit of God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all represented in this throne room. And then verse 6 goes on. Before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. So combining all the images now. We have on the one hand fire, or excuse me, on the one hand uh, thunder and lightning and, and rumblings signifying God is judge. But then we've got this other set of images. We've got fire and water, or the Holy Spirit and water. This is God's salvation. I remind you of John chapter 3, verse 7, where Jesus speaks to Nebuchadnezzar. He says this, or excuse me, he speaks to Nicodemus, and he says this, Truly, truly, I say unto you, unless a man is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Water and the Spirit, figures of God's salvation. So here, friends, in the throne room of God, we see our Lord in all of His glory. And He is seated firmly on His throne because He alone is the sovereign King. And we see Him surrounded by His conquering church. They are ruling and reigning with Him. And we see issuing from His throne both judgment and salvation. This is what God as King does. Offers judgment and salvation. 
And friends, the aspect of God that we each encounter as individuals will depend on what we've done about God's gracious gospel offer. See, friends, this God who sits enthroned as king is also a loving God. He loved this world so much that, that as soon as the human race plunged itself under the curse of sin and death, God was there with a rescue plan. He sent his son Jesus into the world, robed his eternal son in human flesh. And for more than 30 years, our Lord Jesus lived among us, and then he died on the cross, making an all-sufficient atoning sacrifice for our sins. And then God rose him from the dead, and then he ascended back into heaven, showing his victory over sin and death and hell. And now God holds out this gracious offer to every one of us. If we will come to him through Christ in repentance and faith, he will save us. He will wash us with water and the Spirit. He will make us new. If we reject his offer, we will face his thunder and lightning. He is a God of both judgment and salvation. And the God that we encounter will depend upon what we did with his gospel offer. So please, my friend, if you've not done so already, bow to him. Repent. Receive the gift that he offers you through his Son. We continue reading now. End of verse 6. Look what lies beside his throne. It says, And around the throne on each side of the throne are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind, the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. Now, friends, these are angels. These are angels. We know that from the parallel passages in Isaiah 6 and in Ezekiel chapter 1. These are angels, and according to Revelation chapter 6, their sacred duty is to administer God's judgments on the earth. And so we will see in that chapter, God issues a judgment, and then these creatures execute the judgment. Perhaps this also explains why they have these appearances, the appearance of a lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle. In other words, they're representing wild beasts, domesticated beasts, human beings, and flying creatures. They, they are responsible for meeting out God's judgments on earthly inhabitants. And they're covered with eyes and wings that speaks to their attentiveness to God's orders and their swiftness to carry out His decrees. And like all the other creatures of heaven, these beings never grow tired of worshiping God. Never grow tired of worshiping God. Look at the second part of verse 8. It says, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. So these angels at each point of the compass around the throne, they are there to listen to God's orders, to carry out His instructions on the earth, And every moment of every day, as they wait on Him around the throne, they are worshiping God in song. And they're worshiping God for three attributes. First, His holiness. 
You understand God's holiness. It is God's otherness. To say that God is holy means that he is separate from and above the created order. He is, he is transcendent over all. It also means that God is absolutely morally perfect. God is unlike any other being. And so the angels of God worship him night and day, shouting forth, holy, holy, holy is our God. And then you'll notice they also worship God for his might. They call him the Lord God Almighty. Another word for God's might is his omnipotence. It means that God possesses all power. God can do whatever he pleases. He cannot be stopped from accomplishing his good purposes. And he has no true rivals. And friend, all of this is fantastic news for the church of Jesus Christ. God is all good, and God is all powerful. That means he will always do what is best for his people, and it means he will never be thwarted in his good plans. That's why we see his church gathered around his throne here in heaven. He's a good God, and he is a great God, and he brings it all to bear for his people's sake. The angels also worship God for his eternality. They call him the God who was and who is and who is to come. See, our God is the eternal God. He exists outside of the realm of time and space. God has no beginning. He will have no ending. He dwells in the eternal present. This also means that God never grows and develops. He also never grows tired or weak. He is a constant in this this universe. God has the energy of youth and the wisdom of age all wrapped into one. And this is what makes God stable and sure. So it makes him a God that we can bank on. See how he is worshipped by the angels in heaven. But then we see verses 9 through 11, he's also worshipped by his church. It reads, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who's seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever... The 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne, and they worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before him, and they say, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. By your will they existed and were created. So the angels are worshiping God for his holiness and his power and his eternality. And meanwhile, the church is worshiping God too. And they are worshiping him for his worth. They recognize that God is the only being who deserves the praise of all flesh. He's the creator of all. He is the sustainer of all. He is the redeemer of his people. By his grace, he allowed his church to conquer and to reign with him. He is a worthy God, and so his people praise him. My friends, this is what God is really like. This is the true God in all of his glory. He is in a throne room in heaven. His throne is bolted to the ground because he never loses his power. 
And he sits there forever and ever because he never gives the responsibility to another. And he is robed in majesty. And he is worshipped by angels and by the church. And from his throne, he hands out judgments and salvation. He's the God who's worthy of praise for all of his attributes. Now, friends, what should we take away from today's text? Well, first of all, I hope that this text would explode all of the sentimental views of God which prevail both in our culture and in the evangelical church. And you know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the God of the grandfather figure or the, the God of the personal therapist or the, the God who is the wish fulfiller. All of these ideas of God that we entertain ourselves with. God is none of those things. He is God the King. God who sits on a throne. God who rules and reigns. The God that we must submit ourselves to. He doesn't submit to us. The God whose will prevails in heaven and on earth. Friends, see God for who He really is. And secondly... This text also should inspire our confidence. Should inspire our confidence. Friends, with a God like this controlling the universe, what need do we have to fear anything? What reason do we have to fear the future? Or to fear trials, or distress, or persecution, or nakedness, or famine, or danger, or sword? We know that in all these things we are more than conquerors, for He loved us. And that nothing can separate us from His love. Look at the being described in Revelation 4 and ask yourself, can anyone stand against this being? Can anyone rob the church of the future He has promised her? Not a chance. So go forth in confidence. Live as a bold Christian. Live as a, as a faith-filled Christian. Never fear. Never look at temporary setbacks for the church in this life and think that means trouble for the life to come. No, be confident, my friends. And then thirdly, I think this text also shows us what we were made for. Friends, we were made to worship. That's what the angels in heaven do. That's what the saints in heaven do. That's what all creatures of God are called to do, to worship Him with their hearts and hands and voices. In fact, that's why this vision is placed here. To help us see God for who He really is. To develop our confidence in this God. To inspire us to worship this God, no matter what our temporal circumstances might be. You see, in the chapters that follow this book, particularly chapters 6 through 19, we're going to be presented with some very fearful images. They're going to be hideous creatures. We're going to see... Uh, terrible things happening down on the earth below, but we ought to know that there's no reason to fear such things. The church is already in heaven before those things fall. They're here around the throne in chapter 4. And besides that, we know it's going to be a good ending because this is the God who rules and reigns. He's a good and holy and all-powerful God. And so we're given this vision of God before the rest of the book unfolds so that we know nothing that we see here is a cause for alarm. Friends, we were made to know and to love and to worship the God of heaven. That's what we're here for. It's what the church was established for. It's what Christ gave us the great commission for. Why do we go out into the world to make disciples? Because there aren't worshipers there. 
So we go to make more worshipers. Life is about knowing and worshiping God and then serving Him with our whole hearts and faith and in confidence in His plans for us. Friends, let us go forth in that confidence today. Let's bow now in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this text. Use this text to fix in our minds a proper understanding of who you are, of what our relationship to you really is. And Lord, for those of us who have experienced the grace of salvation, might we never grow tired of, of thanking you for your redemption. And Lord, give us a longing for the day when we shall wear those white robes and have those crowns. When the trials of life shall be over and we shall be alongside you and your throne. And Lord, for those who, who might be here and who haven't yet come to you in, in repentance and faith, Lord, stir their hearts today. Open their hearts up. Soften their hearts to be receptive to your word. Lord, might they become worshipers as you've called them to be. Might they take their place in your church as you would have them to do. Lord, might they deal with that even this morning before we dismiss. And then, Lord, give them the courage to speak to others about their, their response to your word so that we can show them their next steps. Lord, we thank you so much for the time you've given us today. Be glorified in it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.